The opera that you're going to see tonight began in a theatre that is just about five minutes brisk walk from where we're actually sitting now. After the huge success of Tosca, Puccini desperately was looking for a new subject, for a new opera. He'd already considered Pelias and Melisande, and indeed Les Miserables. Now there's a thought, what would have happened if he composed Miserables? Uh, then he came to London on a visit uh, in 1900 and was taken by friends to the Duke of York's theatre, just up the street from here, to see a performance of David Belasco's Madame Butterfly, which was based on a story by an American, John Luther Long. Puccini didn't understand a word of what he saw, but he was nevertheless greatly moved by Butterfly's story. And after the performance, he rushed round to the green room, embraced David Velasco, and begged to be allowed to make an opera out of his play. Velasco, in his deeply unreliable memoirs, writes, I agreed at once and told him he could do anything he liked with the play and make any sort of contract because, frankly, it was impossible to discuss arrangements with an impulsive Italian who has tears in his eyes and both arms around your neck. <laughs> um, however, I think in choosing a story set in Japan, Puccini does reveal himself very much as a child of his time. The end of the 19th century was fascinated by all things Japanese. John Luther Long's short story, on which the play and then the opera was based, almost certainly borrowed its plot from uh, a novel, Pierre Lotis' Madame Chrysanthemum, in which uh, a white naval officer has an affair with a young geisha. This was one of the great exotic novels of the age, I suppose the kind of novel you read with a brown paper bag around it. The Impressionists and the Post-Impressionists had also fallen in love with Japanese woodblock prints and with the work of Utamaro in particular. Indeed, Vincent van Gogh and his brother Theo both collected Utamaro prints and others. Toulouse-Lautrec copied the style of, of bold colours, black outlines in his great posters for musical in Paris. And as you may know, if you've read The Hair with Amber Eyes and its story of a collection of Netsky that, that, that was collected by Edmund de Waal's family, individual collectors were also gathering things together. They had begun to collect artifacts, kimonos, ceramics, lacquer work, and etc. So but a story like this about the geisha Chocho-san is already preaching to a converted audience. Well, to help us understand that story, we're joined by Katie Bird, who's covering the role of Butterfly here at the Coliseum, and by Christopher Hopkins, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff. Also joining us is Megan Bearup, who's the head milliner for ENO and who's been with the company for 12 years, and you can see some examples of her work there. But first, we have the theatre and opera historian Sarah Lenton, who is, quite frankly, a living encyclopaedia on all aspects of theatre performance. Will you please welcome Sarah Lenton. I suggested that the opera, Sarah, really does belong to that late 19th century fashionable obsession with all things Japanese. Is that how it strikes you? Yes, very much. Um, and I was brought up on Gilbert and Sullivan, so I knew the Mikado long before I knew Butterfly. I thought that mic might be a bit... Yep, thank, thank you. Um, so, and in fact, there's a quote from... Uh, Mikado in Butterfly, although they both have a common Japanese source. And uh, what I, I find particularly interesting about Butterfly is the Japanese aspect is really fairly accurate, as was the, the fashion for Japanese um, artifacts in the late 19th century, early 20th century. It wasn't shinwazuri, you know, that wonderful 
um, European take on China in the 18th century, uh, it seems to me that there was a more realistic attitude to Japan almost at once. That's very interesting. So, in a sense, what people wanted to see was Japan, yeah. not Japan filtered through a Western sensibility. No, it was another Eastern country. We'd done East, and now it was another one. They wanted the real flavour of Japan. Uh, there are actually moments in Butterfly which Puccini thought were absolutely authentic, which aren't. Um, do you want me to move into that now, or would you Shall like to Shall we save the, the, the we'll piece save itself? It. We'll Let's... save it, okay. Um, I, I'll talk about Japanese theatre a bit later, then. Yes. Okay. Um, can you see an obvious reason why we should have been fascinated by Japan at the end of the 19th century? It is, of course, the great age of empire. Um, the world is growing smaller, thanks to steamships and, <laughs> and to world trade. Uh, America is emerging as a, a Pacific and an Atlantic power. I mean, are all these factors that play into this? Uh, well, it would certainly play into mercantile navies and the Americans, because it was the Americans who opened up the Japanese ports in the 1850s. So there's an immediate connection between Japan and America there. And it was actually that flood of trade between America and Japan, which had the knock-on effect in England. There's also, I'm thinking of Christopher Dresser and people like that, there's an austerity of line, isn't there? which I think starts coming in at the end of the 19th century. I'm talking slightly um, out of the air here, but along with all the opulence of Biedermeier or something like that in Vienna, um, you, you've suddenly got a, a, a taste. If we think of the Wiener Werkstätte or, or Charles René Mackintosh, you've got this taste for austerity, simplicity, integrity expressed in that way. And Christopher Dresser was very careful. I mean, he's a, a chap who went over to Japan and came back really doing authentic Japanese pots when he, he, he reappeared. Uh, and, it, and it was actually saying, look, this is what they do. And I think, yeah, I think that would have a lot to do with the, the interest. It is also a cult of the aesthetic, isn't it? I mean, you think of Oscar Wilde, you think of um, the house beautiful um, and, and all those instructions that you shouldn't clutter your house in a Victorian manner with turkey carpets, yards and yards of, of surround, but a single, you know... Beautiful pot. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so there is a kind of sort of uh, aesthetic element. There's also the slightly um, affected side, isn't it? I suppose... Wilde was talking about his china when suddenly he said, what a lot of blue and white china you have in your study or rooms in Oxford. Wilde, he said, oh yes, I hope I can live up to them. <laughs> uh, so there is a bit of that. Um, there was a moment though, it was, I mean, Butterfly's quite late in this enthusiasm because when Mikado opens in the late 80s, uh, with, you know, who, if you want to know who we are, we are gentlemen of Japan, and all the, all the naughty Japanese references in Mikado. The Times the next day said, I think rather wearily, I suppose we are all more or less Japaned. And um, perhaps 10 years later, it was, it was just slightly coming off the map a bit. Was, do we know if Puccini was interested in Japanese theatre? No, or Kabuki, or at least what was perceived yes, to be exactly. Japanese theatre? He saw... Sadiakos, and I've probably pronounced it wrong, uh, company, who were doing kabuki. They were really doing it in America. And uh, it was, it was a, um, a theatrical company that just went around with the, the great kabuki plays. They realised very, very quickly that Europeans would only sit in a theatre for five hours if it was Wagner. So they started cutting down the plays quite a lot. In fact, removing all the dialogue and just putting in the murders and the... Uh, 
ritual suicides, really. Also, the Americans weren't too keen on chaps playing in the heroine. So Sadiako, who's the business manager, the, uh, the wife of one of the actors, uh, became really the first Japanese female actress, certainly, uh, to be seen in America. And she was very exquisite and would play very innocent childlike parts on stage with an intensity and a sort of savagery, which when you read the crits, and certainly when you read Puccini on the subject, they, were, they didn't think she was acting. They thought, oh, this is what a Japanese woman is like. Innocent, childlike, savage tendency to ritual suicide. Um, and so Madame Butterfly is understood to be an authentic Japanese woman. And the moment Puccini saw this kabuki, which was all by this... Oh, it wasn't kabuki at all. This, this melodrama drama that was shoved on, you know, very, very fast. Um, he, he goes to Butterfly. He's already got trouble with Butterfly because he had a bad first night. He said, cut it, cut it, get terrible efficacy. Um, I want the Japanese look. Now, actually, uh, this isn't an authentic um, style of Japanese theatre, but if it's given us Madame Butterfly, why do we worry? I wonder whether the opera, like the play before it, and maybe the short story too, actually has its roots more deeply in social reality yeah. than we sometimes admit. We sometimes see it as a, a kind of operatic, if not a fairy story, mm. certainly an operatic tragedy, but actually there's a good deal of social realism. No, it's, it's, um, the basic plot line is very realistic. Uh, the, the character herself might be a slight sort of take on what a Japanese woman is or isn't. Um, but with all the foreign sailors coming into Japan and the orderly Japanese mind, uh, as I, I gather this is what must be behind it, um, they didn't want all those brothel scenes in their ports. So a foreign sailor, we fixed up with a girl and a little house um, and some servants for $25 a month. And they'd do a sort of temporary wedding contract, which was renewable well, it lasted for 999 years, as you hear in the opera, but renewable every month. And that meant that this temporary marriage happened. The girls, uh, normally geishas, uh, would save these, this $25 for their dowry, for their proper marriage. And this did calm down the, the sort of riots at ports and stuff. The trouble with this arrangement was that both parties might not be equally understanding of, of what the actual regulation was. So one of them might be more committed than the other, and there was always the trouble of children. Uh, they had no assured place in Japanese society. A half-caste child was, was quite a problem then. And we see not only Butterfly entering into this arrangement and actually thinking she's getting properly married, but also always throughout uh, the opera, the moment we know she's got a child, uh, it's, a, it's a huge question mark. And so this is not the most comfortable reading of Japanese society, and it's a, a, a very uncomfortable reading of, of the way the Americans walk in, um, enjoy what they want, and, and get in their steamship and clear off again. So both societies look at each other, and I don't think either of them come off particularly well. We're looking uh, on the screen at images from the production, mm. uh, and what always strikes me about Anthony Miguel's production, the late, much miss. Anthony Minghella, was an understanding with his wife who did the choreography that this was a piece that was also about beauty yeah. in a way that we don't always think about beauty within the context of Western uh, art. I have a very specific memory of Minghella um, rehearsing the show. And we were in the middle of what I could only describe as our trench coat moments. So there was an awful lot of blood and 
khaki on stage, and suddenly we were watching the rehearsal with Mingela. And there was some little crisis. I, I don't know what, some platform didn't move or something. And Mingela suddenly said from the back of the stalls, I'm coming on stage. So he came on stage, and then he just sat down cross-legged on the stage, which is quite unusual for a director. And I heard him say through, through the, the feedback, we are now going to find a solution, and it will be a beautiful one. <laughs> and so it was. <laughs> Sarah, thank you very much indeed. And you'll be back with the sector. Thank you very thank much, you. Sarah Lenton. Ladies and gentlemen, would you welcome our second guest this evening? It's Megan Bearup, who is the head milliner here at English National Opera. Would you please welcome Megan Bearup? We like loud people. Like we like loud people, yeah. Um, Megan, an obvious first question, what does the head milliner do? Well, I, well, apart from making hats, I also do, um, I make masks and I do the jewellery making and anything else that they can't find someone else to do often. Today I was making some, fixing up some shoes. So it, it, it just depends what comes up in the operas. But I'm, uh, I started out as a, employed as a milliner, but over the years I've become more, get more and more into doing prop costume things as well. So, so there's a kind of rather wavy frontier between hats and, and, and props? Um, in a way, well, between, yeah, costumes and props, yeah. If it's something that someone is going to wear, um, then we're involved, wardrobe is involved, and if it's something that they carry, mm -hmm. then uh, props are involved. So weirdly, swords are props, what the sword is worn in is costume. Same with guns and all that sort of thing. So it can, it can, or like on La Boheme, uh, the the raspberry hat is wardrobe, but all the ones you see that the hat seller is making is props have to go out and buy. So yeah. So, <laughs> um, a quick thought: What's the most difficult thing you've ever been asked to do during your time here at English National Opera? Um, what is difficult? That's really hard to. The the. The, the strangest thing I've had been asked to make, I don't know if any of you saw Powder Her Face, um, which, and I had to make a, a Papua New Guinean chieftain's hat. Um, so we went, actually it was lovely, we went off to the British Museum and got to see lots of actual Papua New Guinean chieftain hats or tribal hats um, and, and handled them and, and I went with the designer and we had a look at them and then we decided how we were going to make it. Um, yeah, that was probably the strangest thing I've, I've had to make at the time. And what are the key skills that you require? I mean, did you train as a, as, I, as a designer or...? No, I trained as a milliner. Um, I, I, have, um, I, did, I did a millinery course in Australia, which is where I'm from originally, and then I came over here to do some millinery. Um, the problem is I started in, I just trained more in fashion millinery than uh, theatrical millinery. Uh, you start off, yeah, so I, was, I, I did my courses and then I concentrated more on getting into theatrical millinery. Um, when I, I did a two-year course at Kensington and Chelsea in, in millinery design um, and halfway through thought I'd made a huge mistake coming over to be a milliner, a fashion milliner. I just couldn't see myself being a fashion milliner at all. But luckily, one of my uh, tutors said to me, perhaps you'd like to try theatrical millinery. It's like, oh, okay. And I actually came to English National Opera, 
with the then uh, milliner, Rachel Cooper, mm. and did some work experience and thought, this is it, this is what I want to do. So it came from there. Uh, us naive people would think a hat is a hat is a hat. Mm. And you've just made an interesting distinction between um, something that belongs to the world outside, be it fashion, mm. hats or ordinary hats, and what you make for the stage. What's the difference between a hat, uh, headwear made for the stage and what we might wear on our way out, apart from going to Ascot, of course. But. Yeah, um, there's not a lot of difference, actually. I mean, when you, when you look at the, the things we've made, I've made for the Man and Butterfly, although uh, they're, they're obviously for the stage, um, but we often do buy hats in, uh, particularly men's hats, if it's trilbies or modern top hats or flat caps or something like that, it's cheaper to buy it made in a factory somewhere than what it is to, for me to spend my time making the pattern and making it up and doing all that sort of thing. Um, but it, I suppose the main thing with it is got to, it's got to be quite durable um, because it gets, it gets worn and it gets sent off to all places. We're, I'm lucky with these ones. Uh, because these were classed as wigs, they stayed here. So uh, butterflies kept, the hat, things I've made for butterflies kept in quite good condition even though it's a 10-year-old production. Um, they haven't been sent off. Although, interestingly, uh, like Pinkerton's cap came back from Lithuania and uh, whoever played Pinkerton must have had quite a large head because it was a big cut up the back with a huge piece of elastic sewing. <laughs> so this time I've had to make a new hat for Pinkerton. Big head, so, Pinkerton. Big head, yeah. So, so things, things get changed around. They, they need to be quite durable. And how prescriptive, I mean, when you were making these uh, wigs hats for Butterfly, how prescriptive was the design? Mm. Not very, actually. <laughs> Hang Fang was, she was fantastic. Um, actually, if any of you want to come up and have a look, I've got lots of, there's the drawings or the designs that she gave, uh, gave us to start with. And then you can see where, roughly what, what I've ended up with. She uh, came and she had uh, these computer images of what she, the overall feel of what the production was she wanted. Um, she also came with a head block and some pieces of cardboard that she'd pinned to the head block. And she said to me, um, I'd like you to make geisha wigs. And she also turned up with a huge roll of plastic, sheets of plastic. And she said, I'd like you to make geisha wigs out of plastic. And it was, okay, fine. So the first one I made, actually, it ended up looking like a 50s housewife. And then I started looking at the shapes of the geishas, the way, the way, so they've got the sort of the roll of hair at the front, the, the hair at the front. So this one here would be a, a geisha. Yes, the yeah. three in the middle are the geishas headpieces. So, and then there's this, an, another roll, when you look at it, they have like a bun piece at the back, and then all the hair pulling up in un, underneath. It sort of, all the hair comes up and then you've got a, a sort of a bun piece at the back here. So that's the, what the, the look that we're trying to mimic with that. Um, it was a different thing too with, you can see on the end is Yamadori's headpiece. Um, and because she also wanted me to make the look of the Japanese men, where they, they sort of shaved here with the pigtail at the top, um, which was also a challenge in, in plastic, <laughs> so flat plastic. So um, I've made the cap. Um, we pulled a, put a bald cap on all the chorus men, which you'll see tonight, um, underneath, and then the, their cap is, uh, is stuck on top. Um, yeah. And, um, and did she have a clear sense of the colours? And she what... had a very clear sense of the colours. The colours were the one thing. She wanted really strong, vibrant colours. Um, also, with all the, the decorations, particularly on the geishas, um, she said I, I, she gave me a few ideas of what she wanted and I did a lot of research and she said I want them all to be really big and so I spent weeks making those all the all the different 
I had a look at different uh, geisha decorations and then enlarged them all. And then I had a moment where we did a makeup test about two weeks before we went, came on stage. And Caroline, um, Anthony's wife Caroline, said uh, she was looking at this makeup um, of the geisha. And I stuck a wig on and she said, I think all the decorations are too big, and I'm thinking, oh no, <laughs> I've just made them all. They're too, you can't, we can't make them any. Well, we'll have to cut them all down or something. Luckily, the supervisor talked her down. Um, and you'll see, well, you'll see tonight, they, it works perfectly because when they come up on stage, then the decorations in the silhouette really work well, I think. Yeah. Presumably, what you also have is an extraordinary body of knowledge about fabrics. Uh, as well as traditions and styles, so that if a designer comes to you, you're able to quietly take them by the hand and show them things and edge them towards what you know you can do. Well, yes, but um, Hang Feng was again a case in point where it yeah. didn't quite work, because her turning up with the plastic, right. I probably wouldn't have chosen black, flat plastic to make geisha wigs out of if I had, but, had a choice. In but I'm thinking of the little rosettes, the pink flowers, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the extraordinary kind of uh, crosswork on, on, on that wig. The, yeah. These are things you would have known about. Yes, yes. Which so, it, well, it, it was sort of, uh, yeah, looking at, at what, what needed to be made and then seeing what materials we had, what, what we could dye, and, yeah, and just working mm -hmm. out from what, what I have, sometimes in the stock cupboard, mm -hmm. that, we can re, that we can use and, and how mm -hmm. I can use that to make, make mm -hmm. it what we need. Yeah. What for you is the perfect designer? Who's the designer that you long to walk through your door? I, actually, we've just finished doing Aknaten and um, yeah, I love Kevin Pollard. He's, 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 he's a lovely designer. He, he was, well, he's very hands-on, and so we had a lot of fun making, I don't know did any, if you any, any of you saw Aknaten with the, the big heads and, and pieces, and he's, he's very hands-on. Um, and, and just for, and, and we have a very nice dialogue with him of it toing and froing, and that's, that's when it's, it's nice, because I think you were talking about, asking about my skills earlier on. I think that's probably one of the main skills that I, you have to have, is being able to meet someone and maybe have a, uh, for the first time perhaps, uh, the designer comes in with their designs and you often have a short period of time to try and understand what it is they want you to do, what their vision is and how to turn their two-dimensional drawings or designs into something that's three-dimensional and that, that can be, I think that's probably the hardest, yeah, the most challenging thing often. You said that these were classed as wigs and they didn't travel, so yeah. you've got to store them. Now, yeah. storing must be an enormous problem. Yeah, I think that we've got a, a space out near Castle Wharf at the moment. Yeah, so mm. they, they, it's, it stays... Well, all of the uh, things that we made stay with the show. Normally, uh, all the costumes would travel with the show if, it, if, it's, mm. uh, if it goes to a, people we're having a co-production with. Or, um, in this case here, yeah, I think these are stored away. Mm. Um, and every time Butterfly comes back. I think actually at the moment, because Butterfly is such a popular show, we're now looking at having co a whole set of costumes that we'll keep here for the whole time. Because obviously, when it travels around, things get changed around. So every time they come back, you've got it having to try it. Even you, the woman will say, but I, fit it, I wore this costume last time. And it's like, yes, but it's gone. Three other people have worn it since you wore it last. So <laughs> it's changed completely. Yeah. Okay, Megan Merritt, thank you very much indeed. And you can come and have a look at these wonderful creations when we finish uh, uh, at the end. Um, well, would you please welcome now Katie Bird, who's covering the role of Churcho San in this production, uh, and Christopher Hopkins, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff. Katie and Christopher.
Katie, let me start, if I may, with you. Um, how old do you think Chocho San is? Um, well, she says in Act One she's 15 years old. So she's, she's pretty young. And there's the problem. You are 15, but you've got a part where you have to sing as if you've been, you know, a professional singer for 40 years. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you have to play the, the vulnerability and the, the innocence, yeah, as, as part of that, yeah. And do you think she, the, the kind of temptation, with the, perhaps, with the piece, is that to always see her as a victim? Is she simply a victim? No, I don't think she is. Um, she's controlling a lot of the decisions that are being made. And as, as you were speaking about before, um, this, is, this was something that was going on a lot, you know, with, with the American um, sailors. And um, even in Act Two, Suzuki says, I've never heard of an American husband who comes back after he's left. Mm. So it, it is something that she, she is aware of, but she has decided that that's not going to be the case for her. That's, that's not going to be the dream situation. So is she innocent or naive? I think a bit of both. I think as a 15-year-old, she's a romantic and, you know, she's had a baby with this, this guy that she was in love with. I mean, you see she's in love with him in that amazing duet that they do. And, and for a brief period, you know, he perhaps thinks he is as well in love with her. Um, so I think she's innocent in that respect, in the way that she's following her dream of having the perfect marriage, mm. even though she knows in the back of her mind, actually, this isn't really probably what's going to happen. And do you think when she marries Pinkerton, that in some way she now thinks of herself as Western? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's lots, there's, uh, lots of things in the opera that point to that, like um, the American cigarettes, um, and she has an argument with Goro and Yamadori, and they say, well, you know, um, here in, Jap uh, in Japan, the law is that if, um, if the husband leaves his deserts his wife, that's it, that's divorce. And she says, yes, but not in my country. Mm. And they say, well... What, what country is your country? <laughs> and, she's, uh, and she says America. And in America, you have to get a divorce through a judge. So in her head, she's now American. What are the vocal demands of this role? Um, it's, it's a bit of a marathon, to be honest. It's a tour de force. Um, she's on stage the whole time. Uh, there's just tiny moments when she goes off and then comes back again and there's a brief period in Act 3, but in this show she doesn't leave the stage. She is on stage the whole time. And, and also the, the range as well. Um, you have to have quite a beefy, juicy middle and low notes to get the richness to cut across that size of orchestra and some of that luscious orchestration. So it's, it's managing all of that, pacing all of that and um, yeah, making sure you have the strength to then sing the amazing final scene. Yeah, that's almost the most cruel thing, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you know, you, you think you almost, you know, run the marathon and then there's another, another hill and another road yeah. as you take your own life at the end. Yeah, but we, weirdly, you know, the adrenaline and the emotion and having the child there, you, you find it from somewhere and mm -hmm. dig deep and, yeah. What are you going to sing for us? Um, we're going to sing um, her aria, her uh, act two aria. One beautiful day. Well, we'll get our hankies out. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> very much indeed. Um, Christopher, how, if I asked you to characterise the score Puccini writes for his opera, what would you what would you pick out? Um, well, it's so many things. It's exciting and thrilling and devastating and deep and light and childish and. Um, complex at times, but very simple at times. Um, it's a combination of those things, but I think it's the first time I've worked on it, and actually, um, as with Bohème and other Puccini, um, it, it transcends its detail. Uh, and what's so fascinating about the score is how much detail there is in. You know, people talk about Mahler and say, isn't this incredible, he's put this on every note, and you know, if he wants a very small crescendo, he'll say, don't get quieter, and that's enough. But Puccini is just as detailed, if not more, um, and it, it, in every aspect. But I mean, in, in terms of tempo, I find that quite interesting. That there's, there's every page has a different tempo. It could be andante, it could be andante sostenuto, it could be andante molto lento e sostenuto. Um, any possible permutation you can think of is there. And so when you get taken in the great sweep of the drama, um, What's forgotten when I watched it, having not looked at the score, is that every part of that sweep is very carefully worked out in terms of pacing. And that's why it's so 
engaging all the time, I think. Did, does he create uh, musical uh, uh, tunes, melodies, little fragments that he can identify with the characters? So can we hear the drama uh, in a kind of very late romantic way in the pit? Um, yeah, I mean, there were certainly themes which you would associate with certain people more than others. Prince Yamadori, for example. Um, Butterfly, not so much. Um, and I, don't, I think in the sense of the late 19th century, it's not in a Wagnerian way of being very complexly related to different small facets. It's a broader stroke. Um, and with Butterfly, what's fascinating for me is the way he does that, not just with themes, but also with harmony. Um, yeah. And to what extent can we hear the Japanese uh, music that he deliberately sought to incorporate in the score. There's a wonderful story which you probably know that at Torre de Lago, <coughs> his home in the library, there's a copy of the Mikado, yes. which he's very carefully noted and watched. Sure. All, and you can see exactly what he's doing. I I'm mean, sure. can we hear Japan in the yep, score? Well, you'll know Mia san uh, is also in the Mikado and, and features prominently in this. Depending on who you speak to, there are up to a dozen original Japanese themes. I don't, I, you know, I, I don't know how original they are, but uh, that he uses everything from to little snippets of um, loads of these themes. But actually what I find more interesting is um, harmonically, uh, I, this is interesting for me as a pianist, but possibly not for everyone, um, that harmonically it's infused in the music. So the two main ways, I would say, are, are both the pentatonic scale and the whole tone scale. Um, and in, we are talking about Butterfly earlier. In her case, as she comes on, that luscious chord there is in a way late romantic, but in a, is, is based on this whole tone scale. And that's certainly something he's thought about, as, a, as a, I would say, as an oriental... Um, colour and that so that permutates much more deeply in the music than just mot motivically. And is he generous in the way that he writes for his singers? He's demanding. <laughs> um, I remember Rena saying she, you know, for major soprano roles, she she writes out all the words on singles, you know, on uh, double-sided A4, closely spaced, and normally it runs to two or three pages, and this ran to ten, I think. So. Um, it, it, her role is particularly demanding, um, but at the same time, he writes so beautifully for the voice. You know, the phrases are, uh, are beautifully balanced. Everything sits roughly in the right place. Um, it, he, he's got an ear for singers that that is at once very demanding and at the same time um, very satisfying. Christopher, thank you very much indeed. Um, <laughs> Sarah, can I come back to you briefly at the end? Um, I, listening to Katie reminding us just how young mm. butterflies, I wonder, is this the most shocking thing, perhaps, for us? It's very definitely something Puccini wanted because uh, the play gives her out of 17 or 18, and he deliberately cut it. And uh, there's a moment where Sharpton says, are you aware how young she is? And uh, some Pinkertons I've seen, well, yeah, that's the point. And there's a sort of horrible gloating about it. So it, it blackens Pinkerton's character too. Mm. Uh, but it's also, of course, Puccini does love to bash up a soprano and, and mm. kill off his heroines and have a victim. And so, 
And he, you remember they've got this Sadako uh, person. He's, he's, he's thinking of what is the quintessential Japanese woman, someone infantile, someone childish. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to bring it down to, to 15 for that reason as well, so a, a dramatic reason as well. Is there any ounce of sympathy for Pinkerton? Depends if he's handsome. Uh, I've That's seen, an excuse, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, sure. But I've seen some handsome, handsome Pinkertons in my time. Um, what's so interesting is you have to listen to the words or watch the surtitles, because Pinkerton, as you'd expect for an Italian tenor, um, starts off the solos, and all Italian tenors, really, and French tenors, too, will come on and do long lines, flowing, easy, and generous, and it gets us into the mood. This is the romantic lead, clearly, and the normal thing it's signalling is, look... This opera's got a heart. You can really believe this guy. He's sincere. Open chest, long lines. And then you hear what Pinkerton is singing. Oh, yeah, the Yankee goes round to every port and he finds the best woman and then he goes. And it's then that you think, oh, this is not the normal Italian tenor. So um, Puccini is flagging up, if you're going to listen to the words, that, that this is... And he makes sure Sharpless comes in and says, well, that's an easygoing gospel. It'll bring disaster. Does, does that mean that you think that Sharpless, the consort, um, who constantly reminds Pinkerton of what he's doing, is really the moral centre of this piece? I th Sharpless is helpless. He knows what's going on and, and, and he, he finds himself a cat's paw for Pinkerton. He has to turn up with that blooming letter which is going to say, I'm not coming back, and he can't deliver it. He, he can't find any words in which to distress the girl. Um... And he has a tendency to say, I told you so, in Act 3. For me, the, the realist, the person you always notice in Butterfly, is Suzuki. Uh, the servant that you get, you, know, you get your $25 worth of, of, of the girl for a month, you get the servant. And many of Suzuki I've seen, I remember Della Jones particularly, this is Suzuki, and she goes... <laughs> And she almost looks at him, like, you're a sod, aren't you? And bows. I'd have sacked her at once. And there she is, the wonderful mezzo-realist all through Act Two, utterly devoted to, to, to Butterfly and knows, just knows what's going to happen and is the one that negotiates the adoption of the boy. So f for me, it's, it's Suzuki, really. I sometimes reflect that there are not one but two innocent women oh. in this story. There is obviously Butterfly, but there is Kate, the American bride who's brought back as a kind of trophy bride uh, in order that she may take the child away back to America. I mean, do, I, I, my heart goes out to Kate. She has very little to do, but musically, I just sympathise deeply with her. It's interesting. I, I'm, when you just look at the, the score, or indeed the, 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 just the plot, you think, oh, oh a plot device. Uh, the little boy's got to have a mother when he goes back with Pinkerton. There's Kate ready. What's so interesting is I've never known a Kate that doesn't come on stage and says, I think she's Suzuki, isn't it? Uh, I'll look after him like a mother. And you always believe her. And there is something built into that part that is utterly sincere and truthful. And, and you feel relieved in a way that something at least is coming out of the mess. How you play it without reproach, I can't imagine. They never seem to, though. I'm going to ask all of you one final question, the same question. You know, this is a piece that, 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 that in this production has been revived with enormous success a number of times. It's a piece that belongs in the repertoire of all companies. It has a kind of enduring appeal. What is the nature of that appeal, Christopher? Um, gosh, well, it's so many things. It's, it, it, it's the way it's paced, it's the way it's... 
this is the craft, I don't know, musically for me, the craft is astonishing and, uh, and it allows the singers to be dramatic and, um, and vocally brilliant and all those, all those things. It allows the orchestra to be the same and the chorus. Um, uh, I mean, underneath that is a, is a fantastically engaging story and, um, and the way that the music takes you from, from the excitement of the beginning and the, the youthfulness and the um, excitement into, into the depths of despair and the, you know, just absolute um, devastation at the end is just... Un- so, so it's everything in so opera compelling. ought to be. It's, absolutely. Katie? Um, I don't think I can add much to that. Um, as a singer, um, the drama, the, the range, um, having that outpouring in the final scenes, just and then the the magic in the duet of Act Act One. I just yeah, there's just a lot of magic in it, really. Megan. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Um, Tell you the surprise is always here. Yes. Yes. It's good. Yeah. Um, well, I I can't speak from the musical record, but I think everyone does like to go along and see a nice drama. And have a good old cry at the end. I don't think I've ever gone to the butterfly and not had a cry. Even when we're in rehearsals and we're sitting there for weeks watching it, where I sat turned around and the, the supervisor and the two of us had tears coming. It's like, I always cry. She's like, yes, I always cry too. And I've been watching it for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> the last word to you, Sarah. I think it's got that wonderful thing of the operatic diva. That is somebody who's the victim, who's uh, got at, who's crushed by the plot, who's dead at the end but has got the notes, has got the emotional truth, has got all the energy on stage. That astonishing thing. It's like being Violetta as well, isn't it? I might be on the, on the floor here, but I'm going to sing, and it's going to go right across the orchestra, across the stalls, right up to the balcony. Um, it, it is that wonderful operatic um, character. And I think it always works. Amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, some thank you. Thank you to all of you for being our guests here. If you would like uh, a drink when we finish, the bar in the circle, I think, dress, dress circle is open. Uh, and the upper circle. And you're sitting on a piece of paper that tells you about other forthcoming uh, pre-performance talks. Do have a look. We should love to see you all here again. In the meantime, if our thanks are to you, they're also to our four guests. Thank you all of you very much indeed for being with us this afternoon. Thank you. <laughs>